In most art forms, poetry, theatre, painting, romanticism is usually held to be over by the second half of the 19th century. But for some reason in music, it seems to be different. I've lost count of the number of times I've heard a 20th century composer described as the last romantic. In fact, there's something rather nicely romantic about the idea of the last anything, isn't there? So maybe there are going to be a few 20th first century last romantics as well. I do hope so. But Samuel Barber was definitely described in his own lifetime as a romantic on many occasions. He was also described rather sneeringly as an anachronism by some of the leading modernists of his time. But here's an interesting reversal. We've got this idea, haven't we, that the modernists are the ones who look forward. They're the ones who are initially rejected and ultimately survive, whereas the old-fashioned figures like Barber fall by the wayside. But in fact, most of the American modernists of Samuel Barber's time have been forgotten in music, whereas Barber himself is not only surviving, but he's flourishing. If you think about it, he's one of a tiny handful of classical composers whose music and whose name is probably known even to the kind of young people who probably commit harikiri rather than come to a classical concert. This is the kind of sound I'm talking about. This is the beginning of the famous adagio for strings. And as soon as you hear it, even if the title doesn't mean anything to you, I'm sure you'll recognize it. really gets to you, doesn't it? It's just those two chords at the beginning do it for me every time I hear them. And I know it may be partly because of association, its use, for instance, in that very moving film, The Elephant Man. But all the same, I can remember the first time I heard that piece, and there was something just about those two string chords at the beginning, where almost immediately you feel some very strong emotional contact coming out of this music, even before the, the theme itself begins. Well, that adagio wasn't actually written for string orchestra originally. It was written for string quartet. It was the centerpiece of Samuel Barber's string quartet. It was the conductor Arturo Toscanini who spotted a winner and suggested to the young Barber in 1938 that he might try orchestrating it for full strings. And as such, it was a huge success. Mind you, it was quite an honor for Toscanini to commission a piece from American composer. Despite his long years in America, Toscanini didn't actually ask many American composers to write pieces for him. But clearly, he was very impressed with Samuel Barber. And when he got the adagio, he called it Semplice e Bella, simple and beautiful. And I think that's very true. It's a real, almost the definition in music of eloquent simplicity. And certainly that even seems even more striking perhaps in times where modernism can seem obsessed with complexity, sometimes for its own sake. Also for the same concert, Toscanini commissioned a new orchestral piece from Barber. 
And Baba responded with something quite short, not much longer than the adagio, in fact, but very different in character, and it's called the first essay for orchestra, and we'll hear it in a moment. A title like that sounds pretty abstract, doesn't it? But it certainly isn't abstract music. Like the adagio, there's a very strong emotional charge going on in this music. At the very beginning, the first thing we hear is a kind of chant-like theme, again, of a distinctly melancholic cast. You can tell that just from the very top line. striking also that Barber gives that figure to the violas, who traditionally have always been regarded as the introverts of the string section. I don't know what our viola section here thinks of that, but that's certainly the kind of mythology that goes with the instrument. But what happens is that Barber doesn't just present us with that chant like that. He actually harmonizes it richly on the other violas, the cellos, and the double basses. And the harmonies in themselves are fairly simple, as they are in that bit of the adagio that we heard before. But at almost every harmonic turn, almost every change of chord, there's a slightly unexpected twist, just a little deft touch in the harmony that maybe you weren't quite expecting. And it keeps you just on the edge of your seat. It makes you wonder what's coming next. So there you have it, simplicity, but just enough unpredictability to keep it from being boring, and in fact actually make it really eloquent and moving. If you introduce too many harmonic surprises, then the effect is, like Dr. Samuel Johnson says, the attention retires. You can almost say, no, 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 this music is too confusing for me. But Barber really knows how to perform this balancing act of keeping something simple, and at the same time just enough surprise in it, just enough of the unexpected to keep it beautiful. And that's very much how this music continues, always, even though the language on the surface seems quite familiar, late Romanticism. It never does quite what you expect. For instance, there's another unpredictable turn a little later after the first really impassioned climax in the essay. Three trumpets take up the chant figure that we heard at the beginning on the violas. Then they turn it into something quite different, a quicker fanfare. Again, it isn't quite what we expected.
Now, traditionally, fanfares announce something. They herald something, don't they? So this creates a kind of level of expectation. Something must be about to happen. And it does. There's a very sudden change of mood. But typically for Barber, he doesn't spring it obviously on us. He introduces it halfway through a phrase. The horn presents a kind of decorated lyrical version of the chant theme. And then suddenly, there's a complete switch of tempo. And we're somewhere else. Did you notice the use of the piano in there, very subtly and discreetly, just to add a little bit of metallic color in there? Actually, the piano part in this piece is full of the kind of writing pianists dread, rapid, repeated notes. A little later, Barber, having tortured the poor pianist like that, actually asked him to play a little figure on his own. I wonder if our pianist wouldn't mind demonstrating for us. It's much harder than it sounds. Barber knew what he was doing because he was a very more than competent pianist himself, so I wonder if he had a bit of schadenfreude towards orchestral pianists anyway. It certainly seems to show in that. We get plenty of use of kind of metallic, threatening low notes on the piano later, very atmospheric, very good bit of colouring. But also, at the same time as this kind of fleet-footed, nocturnal, whispering music that's going very rapidly in the surface, there's something else going on from time to time in the background, which is very subtle. In high cellos and the horns, we get a reminder of that chant theme that the violas played for us right at the beginning of the piece. And it's written out so that it sounds as though the cellos and the horns are playing it at the much slower original tempo. It's almost as though two things are going on at the same time, this very rapid music on one level and this reminder of the much slower elegiac music from the beginning of the essay. So this combination of nervous, fleeting, slightly sinister elements, lamenting chant, distant fanfares, I wonder if this has something to do with the date that this piece was written, 1938. Samuel Barber certainly wasn't an insular American. He was very much aware of what was going on in continental Europe at the time. This is one of many pieces written around then that seem to reflect something about that anxiety about the future. Bartok's Sixth Quartet, Martineau's Double Concerto, the theme that Tippett jotted down for his second string quartet after hearing about the Munich Agreement and Britain's capitulation to Hitler, also in 1938. 
I can't help noticing the way that at the end of this piece, the first essay seems to catch its breath in mid-flight. There's a sudden return on the full orchestra, the only time in the piece where we have the full orchestra used together with impassioned harmonies. And then the fanfares return on muted trumpets this time, tailing away into a strangely ambiguous ending just on the violins and the piano. It's very thought-provoking, this. Well, that ending is even more effective when you hear it in the context of a full performance, the way that this rapid, fleeing allegro music seems to grind to this sudden, impassioned halt and end with that strange kind of question mark just up there on the high violins and that solitary note from the piano at the end. I'm sure you'll agree it is much more effective in context, so it's time really to hear this complete piece now. So here is Samuel Barber's first essay for orchestra, written in 1938 performed for us by the Ulster Orchestra, conducted by Gavin Maloney.
Samuel Barber's first essay for orchestra, a piece which manages to say more in considerably less than 10 minutes than a lot of symphonies manage to say in half an hour. Quite an extraordinary achievement. And now we come to another work written in the run-up to World War II, the Violin Concerto. And for this, of course, we need a soloist. So would you please give a warm welcome to Chloe Hanslip. Samuel Barber wrote his violin concerto in 1939, the year after the first essay, as their lead-up to war was definitely hotting up. And he wrote a lot of it right in the thick of it. He was in continental Europe for a lot of the summer of 1939. He began the concerto in Switzerland in the summer and then continued it in Paris. And then after a very rapid embarkation to the USA, he finished the concerto in his home state of Pennsylvania. First, this music really does seem actually to be remarkably untroubled by current events at the time. Barber could be forgiven for wanting to look elsewhere in music from what was so obviously going on around him. There was another possibility as well, because this work also was written to a commission from a rich American entrepreneur named Samuel Fels. Now, Fels had adopted a violinist child prodigy as his son, a boy called Iso Briseli. Now, I don't know whether Fels told Barber exactly what sort of work he wanted from him for his adopted son, but it seems that he didn't tell him quite enough at first, and this led to quite a bit of strife later on when Barber began to show him what he'd written so far. Well, after all, if you want to show off your adopted son and say, look how clever my child is, surely you want a virtuoso showcase, don't you? But Barber sets a very different tone right from the start of this concerto. Thank you. 
Isn't that gorgeous? Isn't that lovely? Just a sort of minute and a half of sustained melody, almost with no breath in the middle, almost with no pause. It's not the kind of thing that you would write to show off a brilliant young talent, really. All that poetic, dreamy, nostalgic character, and particularly that very long-limbed melodic writing. You really have to be very mature to be able to shape that kind of melody. However natural it sounds when someone like Chloe plays it, you actually really need to have a firm intellectual grasp of a long paragraph like that to know where the absolute high point is and to know exactly when to begin the winding down towards the end. Chloe makes it sound natural, but believe me, it's not. It's not something you can do without a great deal of thought. It's also interesting just to look at the layout of the orchestra on the platform as well. After the first essay, the orchestra here is quite a lot smaller. Barbert's asked for what looks like a very classical orchestra, the kind of orchestra you might have found in Beethoven or Haydn or Mozart's time, with just a couple of horns and a couple of trumpets. But also, we've still got the piano that we heard in the first essay. If you look at the kind of strummed chords at the beginning of the concerto that Barbara asked the piano to play, you might think this looks more like harp writing, but Darber definitely wanted the piano. As I said, it's his own instrument. And it also gives the opening, I think, just a suggestion of that sort of drawing room, salon intimacy. Despite the beautiful, lush sound of the orchestra, you also have the violin and piano, which is the kind of sound you associate with drawing room music. So again, intimacy, not extrovert music, not showy music, but music about almost like chamber music in character. Well, we've just arrived at the point in the concerto where Barbara introduces his second theme. And again, I mean, we hear more of the piano in accompanying this with soft chords and high octaves. But there's a theme on the clarinet itself which leads here. And this clarinet theme is dominated by a little rhythmic figure which is known as the Scotch snap. Now, which the violin kind of takes and elaborates lyrically. But this Scotch snap idea is obviously very seminal here. It's the first thing we hear on the clarinet. of this first movement is definitely prevailingly lyrical. There are the odd passages where the violin does rouse itself into something a little livelier, but still, it's not usually very difficult. It's not really taxing. It's not the kind of thing that draws attention to the brilliance of a soloist, at least perhaps not until the very end of this particular passage.
So we have the violin as a kind of romantic dreamer, a lyrical poet, prone to melancholy, perhaps. Even at the climax of this movement, where there's what seems for a moment like an outburst of a virtuosic solo cadenza from the violin, it actually changes very quickly and quietens reflectively, questioningly, like the end of the first essay. All this seems to be very much in keeping with what we know of Samuel Barber's character. He was about as unlike someone as self-consciously macho as, say, Ernest Hemingway, as you could imagine. Well, actually, indeed, Barbo was in life what they used to call in more euphemistic terms a confirmed bachelor, which is actually rather ironic because he, he did have one of the longest-lasting and most successful partnerships in musical history with the composer Giancarlo Menotti. It lasted until Barber's death until 1981. But maybe we ought to get away from stereotypes. Barber, whatever his orientation, was gentle, sensitive by nature, and he seems to have realized that perhaps there was something a little bit different about him, a little different from the average all-American boy, even by the age of seven, because there's a rather touching letter to his mother that I can't help reading to you here, where it sounds as though he's about to reveal something else until you get to the end of the letter, but this is what he says. Dear mother, I've written to tell you my worrying secret. Now don't cry when you read it, because it's neither your fault nor mine. I suppose I'll have to tell it now without any nonsense. To begin with, I, I just wasn't meant to be an athlete. I was meant to be a composer. And I will, I'm sure. I'll just ask you one more thing. Please don't ask me to forget this unpleasant thing and play football, please. I've been worrying about this so much that it almost makes me mad. Not very. <laughs> It's lovely, that letter. I do like it. So definitely not the solid American boy. That may have been unfortunate for the U.S. Army or for the Curtis Conservatory football team, but it certainly wasn't unfortunate for music, as I'm sure you all agree. And that is particularly obvious, I think, when we come to the real heart of the concerto, the second movement. This isn't really a contrast to the first, despite the slower tempo, because this is even more intensely lyrical, poetic, melancholic, reflective. And it begins with a gorgeous gorgeous oboe tune. This is almost the first sound we hear.
That's a very Samuel Barber tune. Again, you get the characteristics of a very long melodic line. Again, requires very careful planning and phrasing, and yet it's supposed to sound so natural and warm. And again, that kind of chant-like character, a bit like the theme that begins the Adagio for Strings that we heard at the start of the program. And that theme is passed around the orchestra, but the violin doesn't actually get to play it until much later in the movement, which actually makes its appearance on the violin, I think, all the more telling. We've had to wait for the moment where the soloist gets her chance to play this tune, even though it sounds as though it was actually conceived with the violin very much in mind right from the start. Now, I think Barber may have had a great classical model in mind here. Because if you know Brahms's violin concerto, that also, the slow movement, begins with a heavenly oboe tune. Actually, in that concerto, the violin soloist never gets to play that oboe tune, and Josef Joachim, for whom Brahms wrote the concerto, was absolutely furious at this and tried to get him to change it. But Brahms was obstinate. No, this had to be the moment where the orchestra is in the spotlight, and particularly the oboe solo. But Barber's soloist does get the tune, and it's almost like a kind of romantic coming together, a distant ideal lyrical beauty eventually embraced by the soloist. There's something almost sensuous about this. But a lot more of this movement, however, despite the loveliness and warmth and seeming serenity of that tune, does seem to be genuinely troubled, much more so than the first movement. You can particularly sense this when the violin enters, because it sounds at first as though the violinist is building up to the point where she takes over the tune that the oboe presented at the beginning of the movement. But actually, that isn't what happens. Something very different happens, something a little bit more disturbing. It's lovely, again, an example of how Barber leads us to expect something and then actually gives us something quite different. We think that the violin is going to take up the big melody, this is her moment, and instead of which it's cut into by those 
fanfares on the brass and those much more disturbing harmonies on the bass strings. It's a completely unexpected twist. What happens now is that the violin has a kind of big solo cadenza passage, much more fraught and dramatic passage than anything in the first movement. But this time, as the music calms down, what happens now when we don't expect it anymore is at last the violin does get her moment to embrace the big tune. And I think it's all the more effective for being sprung on us at the point where we don't expect it anymore. That's, again, another example of Barber's formal subtlety. At the same time, there's something rather very touching about this movement. I think it was the American composer Virgil Thompson who said that this movement made him think of the title of Robert Browning's poem, Home Thoughts from Abroad. If you think that where Barber was at the time in extremely uneasy and uncomfortable continental Europe how he might have been thinking of home and his beloved Giancarlo Minotti. That possibly gives a hint of the character of this moment and in the midst of this disturbed and uneasy music that we suddenly hear something very beautiful and very consoling. It's a very touching and eloquent moment, certainly.
I think you'll appreciate even more when you hear that music in context, just how beautifully timed that return of that theme is. It's one thing for a composer to be able to create beautiful ideas, but that sense of being able to put them in exactly the right place so that they really count to full effect because of where they're placed in context, that's a sign of a really masterly composer, I think. What follows after this remarkable and beautiful slow movement is an almost complete switch of character for the third movement, the finale. Now, we've got back to the story at this stage of that wealthy entrepreneur Samuel Fels and his adopted prodigy son. Because having written these first two movements, Barber sent them off to Fels, hoping for maybe the odd comment. Basically, you've done really brilliantly, but maybe perhaps we could change a little of this or that or the other. But Fels was indignant. He didn't feel that this was the kind of concerto that his son wanted at all. It certainly wasn't the kind of concerto that he felt would show off his abilities to his full. So he said, it's all right, you can keep the first two movements as long as you make the finale a real virtuoso sizzler. So Barber obliged with a vengeance, perhaps almost literally. Maybe he thought, right, you two. If you want virtuosity, I'll give it to you. And the result was that Fels had a look at this, and along with his son, and they both declared it unplayable. So the premiere was actually given in 1941 by a violinist called Albert Spaulding with the Philadelphia Orchestra and Eugene Ormandy. And I do hope that Fels and his son were there and were compelled afterwards to eat a plateful of their own words because it's extremely difficult, but it certainly isn't unplayable, as Chloe Hanslip, I think, is about to demonstrate. The violin writing is really, really challenging in this movement. It's a kind of perpetuum mobile. The term means perpetual motion. In other words, the violin plays nothing but rapid triplets almost to the end of the movement. And this is how it begins. This is very much setting the tone. Actually, it's cruel asking you to stop in mid-flight like that. I do apologize, Chloe, because actually when we looked through this movement, trying to find extracts, we were trying to say, where can we stop? And it was almost impossible because the violin part continues like that without a single rest, without a single break, even the tiniest break, for page after page after page. It is truly terrifying. And this is the point where I hope I'm going to learn something because I'm going to ask Chloe a few questions herself about how difficult this piece is to play. Chloe, um, is this last movement as terrifyingly difficult to play as it sounds to someone like me? I don't know. I find it. I just find it a fantastic movement. I love playing it. It's such a completely different type of, of energy from the rest of the concerto, and it's. I think it's a really cool movement, and I absolutely love it. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because some people have said it's so different from the rest of the concerto, and now they know this story that actually Barber had to change his mind about it when he showed the first two movements to Samuel Fells. Some people have said it doesn't really fit with the rest of the concerto. You you don't agree, do you? 
I don't know. I just think that it, it is such a different energy. And I think that after having had the absolutely heart-wrenching beauty of the second movement and the lyricism of the first movement, it's quite nice to have something that's, that is so different and is so energetic and just so much fun. Yes. What are the, I mean, is, is this movement then, all right, this is a very challenging movement, but there are challenges for you of a very different kind in the other two movements, aren't there? What, what are the real challenges for you? Are they expressive or are there technical difficulties in, this, in the first two movements? I think in the first two movements, the most important thing is to make sure that you keep the line. And it's not always easy because there are some very, very long lines in there. So you have to kind of, you have to make sure that there's one huge phrase, but also try and, and shape it slightly so there's mm. a smaller phrases in the middle of that, otherwise it, it just gets very, very long. But you have to be careful not to cut it up too much as well. Yeah, so I think very, that's probably the main it's challenge. It's a very difficult balancing act, isn't it? I remember the, the conductor John Barbaroli used to say that a Mahler symphony had only one real climax. Now, if you look at a 90-minute Mahler symphony and have to decide where that one point is, that can be quite a task, can't it? But I mean, I, just listening to you play it, you, you, as I said, you make it sound so natural, but it does, it does require a bit of work, doesn't it? I think so, I think so. But I have, I've played this concerto quite a few times and I absolutely love playing it every single time I play it. So It sounds very gratefully written for the violin. It sounds as if he, he got inside the instrument. I think that's very true, actually. Mm. I think he uses exactly the right registers at exactly the right moment mm. to create the, the, the perfect atmosphere. I gather he wasn't a violinist, so he's, it, it's interesting that a composer can sometimes have this sort of empathic understanding with an instrument like the violin, even if they don't play it. I guess so. I mean, I think a lot of composers actually weren't violinists themselves, and mm. they, you know, they, they write amazing music. So I think it's just making sure that they understand, and Barber very clearly did. Maybe it's that word genius, isn't it? Um, quite possibly. More than likely, I think. More yes. than likely. <laughs> well, thank you, Chloe. Um, we're going to let you take us through the rest of this movement now. But actually, it's interesting what you were saying about this whole business about whether the the last movement actually fits with the rest of the concerto and the fact that we both feel that it does. There's some rather interesting things going on here, some little clever things where I think Barber indicates just how much the finale does belong to the rest of the concerto. Now, sometimes when you've had composers, particularly in the 19th century, who were worried about how unified a piece was, you get composers bringing back themes from earlier movements. Tchaikovsky does it very, very effectively in the finale of his Fourth Symphony. There are other composers like César Franck, perhaps, or Liszt, who do it a little bit less effectively sometimes. It can be a bit creaky, as the great writer Donald Tovey once said it. It's almost like they're saying, oh dear, this piece doesn't work. Let's see if we can rescue it by bringing back one of the earlier themes. But Barber does something much, much subtler than this, and it was only after I was listening to the piece for about the fourth or fifth time that I noticed it for the first time, or I noticed that something was going on that maybe you'd know, I'd noticed subliminally before. Because we have this rather grotesque little theme on the woodwind. It's sardonic. There's a touch of mockery here. And we'll take it from the way that uh, Chloe leads in with more of her flying triplets. <laughs> Again, well ended, Chloe. Well done. Um, let's just hear the first two bars of that little woodwind theme on the woodwind on their own. And what I'm going to ask our piccolo player, Meg, to do now is just play the ends of those phrases a little bit slower. There's just a hint in there, a distant hint of a memory of something from the first movement.
may be very, very remote, but it's just enough, I think, to remind us that these two movements do belong to each other, however different the violin character may be, however different the tone of the music may be emotionally and expressively. So now we can hear complete Barber's Violin Concerto, and we will make up your minds for yourself whether you think the finale belongs to the rest of the work. Certainly our soloist tonight, Chloe Hanslip, does. And she's going to be performing it for us now with the Ulster Orchestra, conducted by Gavin Maloney. <laughs> 